You know our slogan around here is better practice, better life. But we're taking this belief to the next level. And we've recently announced the creation of a new association. It's called the Best Practices Association. Our association celebrates the mindset that is better practice, better life. This mindset celebrates time, healthy living, personal growth, clinical excellence, and impacting the lives of your patients and your team through intentional leadership. In fact, we are the work-life balance experts in dentistry. The BPA will coach independent dental practices like yours to thrive by sharing best practices and operational habits, behaviors, systems, tools, and insight that lead to profitability and sustained growth, and you can still have a life. So if you're a dentist that wants to surround yourself with great thinkers, let us help you create your own version of Better Practice, Better Life. Go to actdental.com forward slash BPA or hit the link in the show notes. Yo, yo, yo. Hey guys, welcome back to another awesome edition of the Best Practice Show podcast. This is installment number two in our interview. Dr. Christian Coachman and myself interview one of the most brilliant teachers in dentistry, Dr. Bill Robbins. And in this episode, he describes the difference in teaching and presenting a beautiful case in dentistry. Check it out. I know you guys will enjoy it and we'll see you soon. Hey guys, welcome back to the Best Practices Show podcast. Another special edition uh, in this rolling series with Dr. Christian Coachman. And we've got a good mutual, not good, amazing mutual friend, Dr. Bill Robbins. And we're going to look back at an amazing career, what makes a great teacher, and lessons learned so that you guys can enjoy this journey in dentistry. One thing that we both love, and that is teaching. Uh, and I want to understand... Um, uh, how did you fell in love with teaching? Why? And uh, how did what are what are the 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 main things that you ad admire on a teacher? You know, it's interesting. I didn't set out to become a teacher. That was never a goal for me. I didn't see myself in that way. Um, so it was a very slow evolution for me. And as I moved from being a resident to being a director of a residency program. That happened fairly early in my career. So I became director of the GPR at the VA in San Antonio when I'd been out of my program just two or three years. And so I had to start to develop my teaching skills because clearly that was going to be an important part of what I did. And I can't honestly tell you that I remember who my mentors were. It has been so long ago and helping me learn to teach. I don't really know um, whether I had a group of people or whether I just observed what I thought, what I liked in a teacher. And as I think about it, um, I don't, people have asked me to help them learn to be teachers. And I don't think I'm much of a teacher of teachers. I don't know that I can take a group of people and teach them how to become a teacher. But as I think back about what, um, what, what I do, what I think I do and I do well is first of all, I spent a lot of time conceiving my lectures. In other words, this is not something that happens sort of on the fly. 
Like anything else, it takes a lot of work. And when I'm creating a new lecture, I make an outline. And so I am doing this in a very methodical way when I'm creating a lecture. And the latest lecture I've created is in some ways my most fun. And when we um, sort of went into the COVID lockdown, a lot of good things came out of that for me. I almost feel guilty because it was like a time of rebirth for me because I had free time that I'd never had before to be creative. And one of the things I started back in those days was a lecture that has now become my favorite one to give. And it's entitled uh, A 50-Year Retrospective, My Failures and Lessons Learned. And it's a failures lecture. Mm -hmm. And one of my mentors many years ago said, always photograph your failures, especially yours, but any failures you see, because someday you'll be able to use them and learn from them. And it's very difficult to take photographs the day you fail. In other words, something happens, you break a file or, or the patient swallows a crown something terrible in your practice it's hard to make yourself photograph it but i've always done it and so i assume i've got one of the largest caches of failures of any clinical dentist on earth and when i started this lecture it started out with only four subjects and now it's up 21. so <laughs> i send this menu of lectures to a study club and then i can only go over about five of them in a day and therefore, the study club director can pick out the five that they want to go over, and that's what we do. And cool. And so that kind of leads into the other part. So the first part about being a good teacher, I think it's got to be done very, very methodical. Uh, it has to be systematically. The, the lecture has to be created based on an outline. The second really important part is just the opposite, and I think that's telling the story. And I think that's something I do well. And... Um, the more you can tell a story when you're teaching, the more you connect with your audience. And so I would say that's the two primary um, areas that I've tried to work on through my career as a teacher. And that is mm -hmm. being methodical um, and systematic in the creation of my presentation, but to attempt to tell a story throughout the presentation from beginning to end. That, that's, a, that's two great suggestions and tips for sure um now going back to your first point systematic um one of the things i mentioned at the beginning is the difference between presenting a beautiful case and teaching right yeah and most of the people on stages you see are clinicians presenting great cases one after the other now presenting great cases one after the other. Just look look at this case. I did this, this, and this. Look at the outcome. Amazing. Next case. Boom. This is what people, most people do, right? Uh, this is not for me. Not teaching. This is just showcasing something that looks good. You know, uh, right. showing uh, what happened in a case. Um, now, when you look at when you are invited to a lecture, you think about a topic. Uh, how do you move away from just putting one case after the other and creating a lecture that is not about the case but it's about the topic it's it's about the lesson that you want people to learn you know what is the process that you go through to structure that if you can give some more insights about it yeah that's a tough one um <laughs> that's the sick is what's a gap once again to surround yourself 
with really smart people, people that are smarter than you are. And um, we mentioned um, my teaching partner, Jeff Rouse, before. So when I left um, academics 25 years ago, I was in full-time academics at the Dell School in San Antonio, and um, Jeff invited me to leave academics and go into private practice with him, and I decided to do it. And so I brought from, from the academic world um, a very literature-based, um, systematic, objective way of looking at dentistry. And I also was a good photographer, and I was all about doing good photography and making serial um, photographs of a, of a technique. And so I was very much of the technician. I was the one that thought in terms of the science and in terms of literature. And I was very much about being uh, literature-based, being evidence-based in what I was teaching. Jeff was different. Jeff was intellectually the most talented Maybe other than I can think of another a couple of other people that are as talented intellectually as Jeff, but I know of nobody that's more talented intellectually. So I just happened to fall into a relationship with one of the smartest dentists on earth. So I was the guy that was I had the good emotional intelligence. Jeff was very shy and he wasn't great in front of a group, but intellectually he was so far above me. And so our marriage early on was a marriage made in heaven because I brought a skill set that he didn't have and he brought a skill set that I didn't have. And when we practiced together for a few years, it was essentially the richest time in my life intellectually because he was so smart and he challenged me um, in my thinking process so much. And at that point in time, we were both becoming um, devotees to John Coy's and we were taking Coy's as courses. And we were learning about facially generated diagnosis. And we both believed that it was brilliant. And we started incorporating that into our practice. But we also felt that there needed to be an equal emphasis on the gingival levels. And that was the genesis of the global diagnosis system. Mm -hmm. You know, Moy emphasized in size leg position, and we emphasized gingival levels. And it was sort of a beautiful marriage between those two things. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think I've sort of tiptoeing around your question because. Uh, yeah. Rouse, Jeff Rouse had a giant impact on the way I thought and mm -hmm. sort of this linear approach to treatment planning instead of, you know, this and this and, and um, sort of a shoot from the hip, we developed this very linear approach to treatment mm -hmm. planning. And the thing that I saw early on as I was teaching treatment planning to young dentists is the mistake that we make in dentistry, and we still make it today for sure. In medicine, our physician colleagues gather data, number one. Number two, they make a diagnosis. And number three, they make a treatment plan. In dentistry, we gather data, and we go straight to the treatment plan. We leave out the diagnosis. And in my mind, that is one of the biggest problems in dental education today and that is we don't make a diagnosis before we make a treatment plan. Mm -hmm. And then Jeff and I, that was the systematic approach that Jeff and I created. That is, you must make a diagnosis because if you have a diagnosis, then there's only a limited number of ways you can treat each given yep. diagnosis. And then it makes it much more objective. So I think treatment planning needs to become 
more objective and less subjective by making a diagnosis before we make a treatment plan. It's actually poor, poor documentation. Not only documentation, it's poor documentation, it's partial documentation, is no diagnosis, poor decisions, and then you have the plan. <laughs> yeah. But, well said. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's the reason why, you know, uh, when we develop uh, the, the whole 3D software workflow that we use, you know, uh, it's basically inspired from what we learned from you. We, you know, DSD didn't reinvent, you know, anything. We didn't invent any concept in terms of treatment planning. We just learned what people like you and Coys and Spear and Kokic and, and, and Shish and, and so many others, you know, the, the, the thinking process was out there already. Now you bring 3D technology and you say like, okay, the thinking process is there. Very few are using that thinking process, unfortunately. Uh, how can technology actually help translate this thinking process visually, right? And, and it's beautiful to see how we can explain facially generated treatment planning and diagnosis with 3D software. How can we explain global diagnosis with 3D software, right? You just look at the images that the software is providing you and you open your book and you go through the four, five, six rule there and you just go step by step looking into the 3D software and you have the perfect world. So I've got a question for you, Christian. Uh, you've been in this world uh, more than anybody else for the last decade and a half. Um, so my first question is, why is it still so slow to be adopted at a, a, across the board? And secondly, how long do you think it's going to take before it becomes essentially a treatment standard rather than a with treatment option? So, Coys uh, and Spear, they came up with this, uh, you know, and Rick Robley, I would definitely add him there. Yeah, so Rick Robley, Robley at first you know, Coy Spear, all these guys, they yeah. come, came up with this idea in the early 90s and still people are not using it. <laughs> uh, you have a brilliant book that is almost 10 years out and still people don't know about it, you know? So it, it, the, I'm, I used to get frustrated with that. Uh, I don't get frustrated anymore. I just think that it's the natural path. Right, it's the natural pace of things. It's the natural uh, implementation process uh, that you know people just need time to go little by little into things. So uh, the 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 other thing that I see is that neither one of these, uh, neither one of us, all of us, and I'm being very very uh, bold here to try to put me into this group of bringing these new ideas, you know, starting from Rob Lee, Coys and Spear and all of you guys, all the way to people like me trying to bring this into 3D and, and teach people how to bring this to their daily reality. That's what we struggle, right? We tell people, you have to use it every day. There's no way out. Every single patient needs to be seen on the same path with the same diagnosis, with the same approach, the same documentation, the same brainstorm, the same interdisciplinary analysis, right? Everything makes so much sense. Everything is so obvious, actually, right? It's so obvious. We see your lecture on the, it's, it's a 10 minute lecture, the four, five, six global diagnosis. 
it's so obvious. You're like, damn, this is ridiculous. I need to do this. And then people leave and they don't, right? And they don't. And one thing that I'm realizing is that um, to do the dentistry that we dream with, to do the dentistry that we love, to do the dentistry that we get inspired with from our mentors, first and foremost, we need to inspire our patients to pay for it. We need to convince our patients about it. We need to onboard them on these crazy ideas. You know, global diagnosis, you, you know, if we want people to use it on every first, second diagnosis appointment, we need to show people how to sell this idea, how to make patients fall in love with global diagnosis. You need to make your patient fan of global diagnosis. You need to make your patient fan of facially generated treatment planning because they need to pay for it. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. People say that they do things. They don't think about money. This is BS, you know, that they are doing all for the patient. BS, you know, it's all blah, blah. At the end of the day, people will implement, you know, technologies, concepts, philosophies when they see that the return on the investment is happening. And so we need to master the process of helping people become storytellers, as you said, about these concepts. How can you tell this story on a non-dental way? So people will embrace it. When people start knocking the doors of, of your students, I came, look, knock, knock, knock. I came here because I want global diagnosis. People yeah. will be like, God damn it, where's that book? I need to do this right now. And I need to do it over and over again, you know? And then another patient says, oh, I only came because of global diagnosis. You know, do you do that? Do you do global diagnosis? And, and you know, we need to learn with Invisalign. Regardless if you like it or not, they did it. They made patients love it and they told the story and they started to make patients knock at our door and say, I want to do Invisalign. Do you do Invisalign? No, 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 but I do something better. Goodbye. Ciao, ciao. I'm going to look for somebody else. And then suddenly everybody's like, oh my God, I need to do Invisalign. And now people are doing Invisalign even when you don't need to do Invisalign. <laughs> so we need a company like Invisalign embracing Rick Robley's book. Imagine if Invisalign, you know, would study global diagnosis and say, this is our next mission. We're going to make the world love global diagnosis we're going to push this world and we're going to make patients understand the value of it and we're going to make patients ask for it. Then the magic happens. That's my opinion. Where do you think we are? Where do you think we are? And I'm interested to know your idea also, Kirk. Where do you think we are on the innovation curve uh, related to um, digital smile design and using that concept as a communication tool? I mean, the innovation, you know, curve comes down and back up. Where are we on that curve? It's hard to say. I uh, I speculate all the time, but you have, I mean, it's almost the bell curve of learning. And Bill, I've heard you describe it. You know, you've got these people that will adopt it. They do it and it improves their lives. And then uh, you've got the others that listen and digest it. And it takes a while before they get it. And then they move in that direction. But it's it's really hard to say. Well, I do know that the people that start with the beginner's mindset and they enter these courses with humility and they use it, they always come back and say they're making progress. But uh, that's a hard one for me to answer. 
Christian, your thoughts? I, I, w- I would say, I would ask, you know, how many people, what is the percentage of doctors in US, Bill, that you think are using facially generated, dental facial, they are using the book from Rob Lee, the articles from Coys and Spear, and your book, Global Diagnosis, how, what is the percentage of doctors that you think are using it routinely as a principle to diagnose and plan their cases? 10% of the doctors, maybe? Oh, I don't think it's that high. Um, I think it is only people that have taken Coys' courses or been to the Spear Center or the handful that have heard me speak to the ear. I, I do not think it's anywhere near 10% of American dentists are using facially generated diagnosis. I think the number would be significantly yeah. So think about that. Now, to use DSD, first you need to understand these principles. There's no way out. You know, there's no way a doctor will take full advantage of DSD if this doctor doesn't understand what you, Coy, Spear, Robley are saying. First, you need to understand it. And first, you need to already be in the middle of the journey of using it routinely. And then you put technology on top that brings another level of challenge of implementation. So I, I don't I don't know if the number of, it's the percentage is much smaller than 10. You know, I think in US specifically, there's a decent number of doctors that are following that philosophy. You know, people that are part of Seattle Study Club, uh, Peter that you know, Dawson Academy, Coy Spear, uh, you know. So even if we get, let's guess, eight percent of doctors in U.S. are following, uh, you know, these principles routinely. I would cut this in half when you add digital. Half of them are mastering these principles plus digital. So you are talking about two, three, four percent of doctors yeah. that are actually doing what we call, not to put a brand DSD on it, so yeah. they're moving away from brand, to what we call comprehensive digital care. That's my new name, comprehensive digital care. So it's not about DSD company, DSD brand. It's the concept of using everything we learned from interdisciplinary treatment planning, diagnosis and treatment planning. That's the comprehensive approach. Using smart technology, that's the digital, and understanding the relationship with the patient, that's the care. So comprehensive digital care brings the three pillars. I would say two, three percent of doctors in US are already enjoying this routinely. So there's a big market for us to explore in terms of education. Well, and we all are bemoaning um, the way dentistry is moving in the world and certainly the United States, and that is to the corporate model. And people commonly ask me, do you think there's going to be, you know, is it going to ultimately be all corporate? Is dentistry eventually going to become all corporate? Now, I don't think so. I do believe there's always going to be a place at the top. Now, I don't know if that's because that's where I am, and I don't believe there'll be a place for me, but I do say that there's always going to be a place for this. And in fact, it's the perfect way not to be not to have to yeah. do that. That's what we call it. You know, it's like being the three-star Michelin restaurant. You know, all these principles that we are talking are the shortcut for a doctor to be the three-star Michelin restaurant and not be inside corporate dentistry if that's not what you want, right? I don't, I don't think that in the future, corporate dentistry will be bad. It's the same way that 
medical hospitals are not necessarily bad, you know? Physicians are not running their hospital. They are working for hospitals. And we're going to be very similar. You know, dentistry will evolve to that. And, right. But you will always have space for the, the very good private practice, you know, delivering high-quality, unique experiences. But you need to learn these principles. You need to differentiate yourself. And But the corporate world, you mentioned corporate world, is will learn these principles as well. And that's another path. Exactly. That is going to happen very fast because the moment that the corporate world understands that this will generate predictability, that this will improve quality in a more consistent way, that this will differentiate themselves, I see corporations already looking at these principles and thinking, hmm, there's, there's very smart business there and you're going to see chains of clinics starting to incorporate this technology, starting to incorporate these principles, of course, with the business mindset, but bringing this more mainstream. Well, for sure. And with the economies of scale, they're in the perfect position to do this. Yeah. They can afford the technology better than the mom and pop operation can afford it. Yeah. So yeah. there's no question. It'll just be inter interesting to see um, if and when, which, which of the companies do adopt it. Um, because it will take, it will take a real commitment for a corporate organization. It's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. And, and of course, corporate is like, I, I always use Ferrari and Fiat, right? Uh, you're never going to have on Fiat everything that you have on Ferrari. They're the same company. They're the same, but Fiat benefits, they handpick the amazing things that were developed on Formula One Ferrari. And they bring, they dumb down a little bit and they choose the things that can be used on mainstream that makes the Fiat a better car. Definitely makes it a better car. So uh, corporate dentistry will start to learn all these things and start to bring things that can be scaled, right? But that will help dentistry get better for the masses, for sure. You know, and, and, and I see that happening, you know, when Invisalign launches Small Architect, you know, it's a clear move on trying to bring facially generated digital smile design, global diagnosis. I'm, I'm helping, for example, Align bring global diagnosis into their smile architect that is serving millions of dentists. And suddenly you're going to have that incorporated in a way where these ideas will help, you know, thousands of patients. Absolutely. Very well said, gentlemen. So as we look back at, you know, or look at two careers of two amazing teachers and, um, and, and leaders in dentistry, what's your, what's your final thoughts or hopes for not only the profession or anybody listening to this podcast? Bill, you. My final thought is, is that this is the most exciting time to be a dentist ever on earth. Uh, there is no question about it. And when I look at my son and what light is ahead for him, um, there's certainly a part of me that wants to remain young and viable for as long as I can to sort of share a little bit of this journey that he's going through at the beginning and I'm going through at the end. But I never, and you know I'm being honest, Kirk, when I say this, I've never been more enthused about dentistry than I am today. I still... I've got a patient in about 15 minutes. Um, I'm going to get to do an aesthetic crowd lengthening on this patient. 
And life is awesome as a dentist. For me, uh, it's never been better. And so I don't know who is listening today. I don't I don't know if it's young dentists or old dentists or no dentists at all. But the young dentist, um, you are well-placed in the best profession on earth. There is clearly no other medical profession that compares with, with what we get to do. Um, this is the best time ever to be a dentist. I totally agree. And I would emphasize, you know, with all the crazy artificial intelligence disruption and literally probably in the next few years, professions will disappear almost or, or will be completely changed in the next five to 10 years. What is going to happen in the professional world is just crazy insane, right? And, but dentistry is getting even more stronger with all this advancement and more vital because you cannot substitute that easy what we do. Less and less. And technology will always support us, but we'll never, at least for 100 years, will not be able to do what we do. So uh, just to emphasize, Bill, I think that young dentists that are still struggling, did I choose the right profession? Oh my God, this is tough. Oh my God, right or wrong. You made a great decision. If it, if it was a pure strategic decision, you made an amazing decision for your life. Just hang in, don't give up, and the future is bright. Yeah. I would yeah. amen to both of what you what you both said. And I don't care if you're a dentist or a non-dentist. I think the challenge for anybody listening is always keep your best years in front of you. And I see that with yeah. both of you. So uh, it keeps the journey exciting. So thank you, gentlemen, for both being on today. As always, I appreciate your friendship your leadership, and just who you guys are. Amazing. It's been an honor for me to be with two of my favorite people. Um, I wish we were in person so we could hug. But yes, other than that, it's been it's been a great day for me. Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of it. Hope to see you guys soon in person. All the best. All the best. Yeah. Well, stick around while we say goodbye to everybody else, but thank you guys for listening to the Best Practices Show. Hey, if you enjoy today, do us a favor. Just hit the share button. Keep sharing this with your friends. We are just loving this. We're going to have Christian back again and again and again, and Bill back again and again and again. Keep sending us your suggestions for things that you guys want to see. And until we see you guys next time, or you hear from us next time, keep watching or keep listening to the best practice show. So there you have it. Another great episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hey, and thank you for showing up. I just want to thank you for being here and sharing the good word with your friends. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, could you do me a favor? Could you go to wherever you consume the podcast and just give us a four or five star review? Here's what that does. It allows us to find other great people like you. I love this profession so much. I'm going to spend the rest of my professional life finding great information so that you can consume it and your friends can consume it so that you can create a better practice and a better life. So keep spreading the word and we will see you guys soon. Have a great day, everybody.